0: Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, an anti-critical race theory policy in Johnston County releases millions in school funding, how landlords can refuse rental assistance payments and evict tenants anyway, and HBCU funding takes a blow in the reconciliation bill. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. In an effort to prevent the teaching of critical race theory, a Johnston County school board has instituted new ethics guidelines in exchange for the release of $7.9 million that had been withheld by the county's board of commissioners. The school board unanimously approved the new policy. Now, here is some of the language from that policy. It says, Staff shall not teach social theories outside of North Carolina standards of any kind to students unless approved by the North Carolina State Board of Education and legislated by the North Carolina General Assembly. No employee or student shall be forced to have compelled speech or acceptance of ideas that are contrary to their beliefs. No student or staff member shall be subjected to the notion that racism is a permanent component of American life. All people who contributed to American society will be recognized and presented as reformists, Innovators and heroes to our culture, as if teachers aren't under enough duress. Of course, they will be fired or disciplined if they are discovered non-compliant with any of these policies. Now, right now, I want to welcome Craig James, a criminal defense attorney and member of the Johnston County Education Summit. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And I just want to open by asking you, you know. First, share with us, what is the African-American education? What is the summit, rather?
1: The Johnson County Education Summit is a group of individuals that came together uh, some years ago, a couple of years ago. Uh, we came together because we had a long-standing school board member, an African-American lady, who was preparing to retire. So the Johnson County Education Summit is made up of concerned citizens, clergy, professionals, uh, retired educators, uh, business owners, parents, uh, just a cross-cultural uh, collection of individuals that are concerned about our education.
0: And what are the thoughts of the summit group about this recent policy?
1: Of course, the summit group is shocked, um, very disappointed that the school board uh, would pass such a policy. We are. On the other hand, uh, we're not really that much surprised based on the way things have been going in the country for the last four or five years.
0: Well, although the the board of commissioners, which controls the budget for the school system, is an all-white, all-male, all-Republican commission board, uh, when I visit the Johnston County Public Schools website, I see a very diverse representation of principals in the system. And, and scrolling down the Twitter feed, I see a really beautiful site with uh, children of different genders and ethnicities, and, and, they're all, and they're applauded. And I see that the superintendent of Johnston County Public Schools is an African American, yet this policy passed. What can you share with us about how the local education uh, community feels about this policy? What more can you share?
1: Well, I've had an opportunity to talk with some educators here in Johnston County. Many of them feel as if the commission, first of all, overstepped its bounds by uh, withholding funds that were there to benefit all children. Uh, And we, with the Johnston County Education Summit, believe that we represent all children. Uh, Anytime there's an issue that's going to affect the education of our children, we believe that we would be there to step in, to be a voice for those children. Um, And then for the school board uh, to set such a precedent for the county commissioner, because now all of a sudden, if they believe that they want something done, they can just come back and say, okay, we're gonna withhold funds if you don't do X, Y, or Z. And then all of a sudden, the school board seems to have lost discretion and the ability to uh, stand on its own and make good decisions for our children.
0: Well, it just seems as though such a uh, representative group would have mounted some sort of protest, um, would have come together to say something. Um, Did that protest or did their voices get heard to your knowledge? And uh, if so, uh, was there a, a strong protest at all?
1: I think one of the things that we're dealing with uh, currently around the world and around the country is this pandemic. I think this pandemic has spread a lot of people out and we uh, were not able to get together like we were doing initially. The Johnson County Education Summit, we were going to school board meetings, we were there, we were present, we were a voice, we were addressing the board. But once the pandemic hit, Uh, Of course, we had to take a step back. Meetings are closed uh, as far as being physical and being in the room with them. Uh, We just can't be there. However, um, there were some protests. There were uh, people lifting their voices. But at the same time, I think there would have been more of a pushback if we could have gathered crowds of people and flooded the halls and flooded the rooms to let them know that we were not happy with what they were considering doing.
0: So at this point, uh, the the new policy is in place. Are you aware of any resistance or are we just going to, is the organization, uh, is the school system, teachers and everyone just kind of accept this and go ahead and teach in the way that they uh, know will educate and edify all of the children, but certainly complying with uh, with the rules because there's always there are always creative ways to teach the truth and comply with the policy, I would
1: think. We're not gonna stop the fight. We're gonna continue to push. We're gonna continue to push back. We're gonna continue to raise our voices. We're gonna continue to make demands. We're gonna continue to show up. We're not just gonna sit back and let this just go under the rug or just pass easily and continue uh, on this course. We believe that there are some things that can be done. We believe that we're um, gonna be able to challenge some things hopefully in the future, in the near future.
0: Certainly. Uh, Certainly. And just in the last few seconds, you know, 7.9 million is a hefty lift for public schools. was was the, their consideration given to what that might mean in terms of a sacrifice, if if this policy was not instituted?
1: Well, I'm sure uh, with that amount of money on the table, it influenced the decisions, as we already can see. The, the decisions were influenced, um, but keep in mind that seven point million dollars were for was for every student, it wasn't just for certain students, it was for the whole school program as a whole, the Johnson County education as a whole. And to withhold it based on this particular issue uh, had an, would have had an effect on the entire uh, school population.
0: Well, I certainly wish the best to all of the teachers, educators, and students in Johnston County in um, learning this year and in years future. Craig James, thank you so much for being a part of
1: today's program. You're welcome, and thank you for the opportunity to share.
0: A recent report in the News and Observer tells the story of a landlord in Durham who's refused to accept rental assistance from 160 tenants. The article goes into detail about one particular renter's experience dealing with the cost of child care when COVID caused school closings, an accident that left her disabled and unemployed, maintenance issues that created expensive utility bills, and subsequent back and forth with a landlord, legal aid, and a Durham rental assistance program funded by federal COVID stimulus dollars. Now, while it's reported the county has made payments on behalf of over 1,400 households and only a handful of landlords are making things hard for renters, that handful amounts to 2,100 applications or potential families out on the street due to eviction. So I want to bring our panel in on this. We have political analyst Steve Rao. Lamicia Whittington of Advance Carolina and attorney Yolanda Taylor of the Center for Community Law Equity. I want to open with you, Yolanda, without getting into the weeds of individual stories. What is most disconcerting to you about the rental assistance process in terms of keeping people in their homes and protecting them from eviction?
2: What's more concerning to me is that, you know, we have like billions of dollars that were allocated to solve this issue, but yet... Even during the pandemic, when um, we were at our highest peak in 2020, there were tenants still being evicted. Um, as a former legal aid attorney and a managing attorney of legal aid, I saw firsthand how tenants you know, were being evicted due to crafty legal pleadings by landlord attorneys and landlord attorneys refusing to accept the rent, even when um, uh, attorneys tried very hard and were successful in obtaining that rental and utility assistance. So, so it's discerning to me that the way this whole thing was thought out was that, Um, you know, give it to the landlords, you know, which I think they did that because maybe they felt the tenants were not appropriated correctly, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but landlords, you know, were becoming frustrated in 2020 uh, because of the simple fact that the bureaucracy of it, and it was a long time before the tenant actually got approved for rental and utility assistance and the time when that money or that check was actually cut to the landlord. So it could have been months. And, 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 you know, mom and pop landlords, you know, understandably, you know, use this money for themselves. So they were getting frustrated as well and were getting behind on their own bills. But even after 2020, you know, at the end of 2020, early 2021, we still were seeing how slow this money was moving. Even though I will say that our state um, does tout the fact that they're number two in the nation as it relates to how fast the money has moved. I know that nationally there are some slow spenders. But what's concerning is that black women with children are at the forefront of this eviction crisis and that we see their faces time and time again in the headlines. That's right. That's right.
0: And, uh, yeah, I want to bring you in here, uh, L.A. This ties back to our federal and state laws about evictions. What are your concerns about the, the moratoriums and the impact on families, especially when the bureaucracy is out there, as Yolanda said, and landlords are refusing to accept payment?
3: That's right. Well, first, we should definitely still have an evictions and utilities moratorium. So I'm going to say that up front. We're still in a pandemic, right? So why is there a deadline? on protection when there's not a deadline on a pandemic. Uh, The CDC eviction moratorium took effect on September 4th of last year, right? To protect folks from being evicted um, as attorney Taylor referenced and was initially set to expire December 31st of the same year. Um, But Congress extended that to the top of this year in January. President Biden further extended it through March, June and July and provided a total of $46.5 billion for emergency rental assistance, ERA. But here's the issue only $3 billion of that 46 billion has actually been spent by the end of the summer. Why is it because a lot of legal red tape, as Attorney Taylor already referenced, the application process is not clear. Um, there are no clear regulations or stipulations of how that money should be allocated, so counties and states are having to figure it out, piece it together, and that can vary depending on who is actually elected and in charge of the county. That's why you're seeing discrepancies in, uh, for instance, Durham County has been able to move funding rapidly versus other rural counties counties around the state may not be moving as fluently. And so we're looking at, um, there's research that says up to 80% of households behind on rent and at risk of evictions live in communities with over 100% COVID-19 case growth rates. And this was
0: found in July. And so the there's thing a is, point. you have these statistics out here, but but it's people. And it's mm-hmm. also the mental duress of having to go through all of that bureaucracy. And it just reveals to me uh, a lack of sensitivity just human beings and, and what you're having to deal with on a daily basis uh, just to get, get this funding, you know, Steve, you know, how does the situation, you know, kind of taking a, a bigger look at it, reflect on the larger issue of protections for renters and for, and for landlords?
4: Well, I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, MUCH HAS ALREADY BEEN SAID. I MEAN, WE'RE IN THE MIDDLE OF A PANDEMIC. Uh, YOU HAVE IN NORTH CAROLINA THOUSANDS AND THOUSANDS THAT ARE BEING EVICTED OR FACING EVICTION. AND 54,000 NORTH CAROLINIANS uh, OVER THIS LAST FEW MONTHS WHO ARE BEING DISCONNECTED FROM THEIR WATER, THEIR BROADBAND, THEIR ELECTRICITY. Uh, AND SO uh, NO CITIZEN SHOULD HAVE TO MAKE A CHOICE BETWEEN PAYING THE rent and these basic amenities we need uh, anytime in our country, but particularly during a pandemic where we're telling people stay home, we want you to get vaccinated, uh, we're trying to fight off COVID. So I think the answer is we just have to get uh, the landlords uh, to work with us and make sure that we are extending the rent moratorium, that our General Assembly isn't making it hard to do that. We should be making it easier to do that so that more people uh, can, um, you know, we're, we're heading into the end of the fall and, and soon the wintertime and, and Uh, People without a home, what are they going to do? They're going to get infected and sick. So, you know, I think that... uh, And the the second thing I'll say, just to close out, is this has brought up to me the incredible need for affordable housing. And this is an issue that we've talked about at the local level. Raleigh's putting a bond on the ballot. But we need more affordable housing in our country so that people are to pay these exorbitant rents uh, just to live—that's an issue for another time. But I do think it's something that I had to say today on this program. Well, <laughs> affordable
0: uh, affordable housing is directly tied to this issue because you've got so many people who are out there renting, and I don't know if they are aware of the the benefits of home I- ownership. Of course, their responsibilities for home ownership. But but Yolanda, you know, pulling in this Build Back Better plan and the areas that. Uh, the Biden administration is planning to invest in, do they, does it address um, the, the needs that are kind of manifesting in a small kind of story like this? You've got environmental issues, you've got the housing affordability. Um, you know, what, do, what does the build back plan need to be really emphasizing to folks about uh, the value every single time you take another trillion dollars off?
2: Well, it's my understanding that when Biden and Harris ran, you know, there was hope for this whole, like, turnover of racial justice equity. So what needs to be built into this plan is racial justice equity, because before the pandemic, Black women, people of color, Indigenous folks, they were already facing an affordable housing crisis, right? So the pandemic has only exacerbated the need for affordable housing because they are at, most of them are paying more than 30 percent of their total um, household income towards housing, which means that they're a cost burden. Um, You know, there is some hope in the American Rescue Plan Act as it relates to the money that's flowing from the federal government. But again, bureaucracy can slow that down. It's my understanding that $100 million through September 2022 in rental assistance for very low-income tenants, those were the tenants I used to help at Legal Aid, folks who make... um, 30% 30% of the area median income um, in Raleigh, a place like Raleigh, that someone is making around $24,000 um, for a family of four annually. So we're talking about working people. We're talking about essential workers. We're talking about those folks that we needed to go back into the economy so that the economy will not totally you know, fall rock bottom. So we're talking about people who need to be able to live in the places where they work. So um, it, it is, um, you know, a, a housing pandemic, I will call it, but it was a pandemic for low-income tenants way before COVID.
0: Agreed. There's so many different uh, aspects to this, and it does tie back to this this conversation that's happening over the infrastructure uh, bill, both of the bills. And so Uh, People just need to be paying attention and engaged and active. While headlines focus on whether or not Biden's Build Back Better plan will get passed at $3.5 trillion or $1.5 trillion or not at all, the devil is in the details. What gets cut with that compromise? Um, It's possible $43 billion in funding for HBCUs. Funding started out, proposed at $45 billion, but Some say it's been whittled whittled down now to $2 billion. Uh, When the bill went to Congress for reconciliation, that was one of the casualties. Georgia Senator Dr. Raphael Warnock and North Carolina Congressional Representative Dr. Alma Adams both protested the move in writing, and Representative Adams has said she will not vote for the bill in its current form. So, Steve something um had to give. What do you think this reduction is all about and is it fair?
4: Well, first of all, Deborah, let me say from the outset that, you know, HBCUs are and have always been the drivers of economic uh, the the engine for economic growth and opportunity for black Americans and also Uh, A a PLACE WHERE WE CAN BUILD THE LEADERS OF TOMORROW. AND VICE PRESIDENT KAMALA HARRIS uh, WAS A GRADUATE OF AN HBCU AND SENATOR WARNOCK HIMSELF, THE FIRST BLACK MAN uh, TO REPRESENT uh, GEORGIA IN THE UNITED STATES SENATE. AND SO I THINK IT'S SO IMPORTANT THAT WE INVEST AS MUCH AS WE CAN. In these universities. What I will say is that the $45 billion number, you know, I think there has been a little bit of confusion and that my understanding was that number was over a period of time. And, you know, $27 billion were going for subsidies, another billion for institutional aid, $2 billion for research and development. But there is a $2 billion pot of money now that could be used. And Representative Adams might have been talking about a, a, you know, investments in infrastructure and things like that. But I think what we need to do, in my opinion, is um, support the current pot of money right now—the two billion. Do everything we can to make sure that all of that money is being earmarked now, today, for the uh, for the HBCUs. And then, moving forward, continue to advocate uh, to the leaders, including the president. And the Congress and the Senate that in this infrastructure package, particularly the 3.5 trillion, the devil is in the detail. And so when these big numbers are thrown out, it's often hard for organizations to know how is that money being broken down, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's what I would say. But right now, moving forward, I think it's incredibly important, uh, particularly the final thing I'll say in the middle of a pandemic and on this show, we have talked a lot about systemic racial bias. We have talked about the lack of home ownership for black Americans. Only 45 percent in America own a home compared to 75 million white Americans. We've talked about disenfranchised communities and minority businesses. The only thing that can get us to uh, level the playing field for our minorities is education.
0: Education is key. Yolanda, when we say Education is key, but we see these reductions take place uh, in funding for HBCUs, et cetera. What do you think it says about our value and appreciation for HBCUs? And by the way, they're not only beneficial for African Americans, but making a multi billion dollar impact on America's economy, period.
2: I think it shows that we undervalue HBCUs. We undervalue the history of HBCUs, the, the reason why HBCUs had to be created in the first place. And we undervalue, I guess, the uh, cultural experiences um, and history that HBCUs can provide. You know, and in the aftermath of the whole um, Hannah Jones um, discussion and debate, um, we know that Her experience was, you know, uh, I guess a a symptom of a larger problem, which is when we look at HBCUs and, and them being undervalued, we have to ask ourselves, what is progress for our communities? You know, what is progress for our communities? We're constantly... I love to say this at the back of the bus, um, at every system that reproduces inequities in this country. And when we look at HBCUs, we see that this is the only opportunity for some students to even obtain a college degree. That's right. Um, because maybe they're being excluded from privately white institutions. And then we also look at the fact that faculty, you know, um, Hannah Jones finally, you know, resorted to the fact that I'm going to take my talents elsewhere. I'm going to take my talents where they can be used in the HBCU. Uh, but across the nation, we see that the numbers as it relates to professors of color, you know, are very low as it compared to, you know, our white counterparts. So I think that, you know, HBCUs have been chronically underfunded. And while we should advocate for the $2 billion, I agree that we should move forward with advocating that our HBCUs, you know, are, are valued as much as other institutions. Absolutely. Um, and they're undervalued for many reasons, you know. And I think again, it's... it's a- also that.
0: I think it's important too to recognize LA that when we're talking about this big pot of money for um, HBCU funding, it's not funding for HBCUs. It's for funding. It's funding for HBCUs and MSIs, minority serving institutions. And we talk about the the huge impact of HBCUs. You know, is that shared with the MSIs? And you know, are they getting? Are they sharing in the credit that really HBCUs are doing the work for? It's such a great question, right? And so
3: when Congresswoman Alma Adams uh, wrote her letter and, and stating that $2 billion was just simply not adequate, the, the cuts were not adequate, Is because, you know, number one, some of these schools are 150, 160 years old. Uh, one of the first historically black colleges and universities, uh, Lincoln University, was actually founded in 1854 before the end of the Civil War. Right, so these institutions have. When we say historically, they have been historically the bedrock and the safety and protection and the incubation of our people during pivotal moments in history, even to birthing the civil rights uh, movement through Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That protest happened here in Raleigh. So when she was talking about that two billion dollars, we would actually, as HBCUs, have to share and fight for funding because that pot is one pot for all of guess what, HBCUs and the minority-serving institutions. It's not actually clearly, as Steve mentioned it is not clearly earmarked. And that was Congresswoman Adams. That was her, her statement. She said, if I support this, because that's when we talk about the bill process, we hear this very like polarizing, oh, we can't vote for this bill. You know, at, uh, you, Congresswoman Adams is putting this at risk. She's saying, no, we can actually do amendments. And those amendments should t- say, if we're going to use from the $2 billion, this amount should be earmarked for HBCUs. We should be very clear how much HBCUs can receive. So it just isn't lost in the saw, so to speak. That's the clear stipulations and amendments we can achieve. And when we talk about the impact of HBCUs uh, historically, like in contrast with PWIs and MSIs, HBCUs account for approximately 3% of all colleges and universities, but well over 20% of Black Americans continue to earn their degrees at these schools. And about 25% Black Americans earn their STEM degrees at HBCUs. And the last thing between, and I love my stats, right, because it it clearly like grounds the comparison when we say, well, which one's better? It isn't about who's better. It's about who's creating results because the environment is for our culture and our safety. And you can't put a number on that, but you can't absolutely quantify how many students are successfully matriculating because they're safe and well-loved.
0: I couldn't agree more. Lamisha Whittington, Steve Rao, and Yolanda Taylor, thank you so much for your thoughts today.
4: Thank you, Deborah. Happy Diwali. Thank you.
0: I want to thank today's guests, and we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum, or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Thanks for watching.
3: through the financial contributions
4: of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.